We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. Don't let them change you. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but it caused me some problems. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode and it's going to be around this kid. We're the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And with that came the expectation and with that came the pressure. New episodes of American Prodigy drop Tuesdays from Blue Wire Podcast. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host, Nick Filato, and we're here today to break down the All-22 coaches film of the offensive side of the ball during the Giants' Week 13 victory over the Seattle Seahawks, an excellent victory for a lot of reasons. I want to start this bad boy off, though by breaking down why I'm so appreciative of this offensive effort after watching the All-22. Was it perfect? No. Was the play calling perfect in all spots? No. Was the passing game perfect? No. Was the run game perfect? No, but pretty damn good. But really, ultimately, why I'm so appreciative of this Giants offensive attack on the All-22 after watching the All-22 is because they came in with a game plan, one that both Nick and I on last week's podcast suggested they should have. And that game plan was to use heavy personnel packages. They used an incredible amount of 13 personnel. I mean, they had three tight ends play a minimum of 58% of the snaps each with Evan Ingram leading the way with 44. But even Levine Toilolo, had 32 snaps. Every single one, Caden Smith, Levine Toilolo, Evan Ingram, at least 58% of the snaps. They had formations where they had eight guys on the line 
with three tight ends and the five offensive linemen. They had formations where they had Shane Lemieux as a fullback. The point of this, and we're going to get into all of that, is that they came in with a game plan, and that game plan was the only way we can win this football game is to rely on our defense to have the game of their lives and have Patrick Graham and that crew out-scheme, out-confuse, and, or, or confuse, I should say, and out-hustle Russell Wilson in the offense, and then control the ball on offense, work to spring plays in the run game, stick with the run game, even if you're not springing like they weren't in the first half, shorten the game by utilizing a lot of the play clock on every snap, which they did, and then hit a few plays in the passing game, which at times they did. So they came in with that game plan. It was the right game plan for the specific game. They shortened the game. They ended up with almost half of time of possession. And I'm appreciative of a team that came in with an excellent game plan and was able to show new things by doing so. They hadn't used a lot of that 13 personnel, not anywhere near this. They hadn't used a lot of those eight man on the line looks with literally three tight ends lined up next to each other across from five offensive linemen. This was old school football. They had stretches of this game where they ran the ball four, five plays in a row and effectively. So Nick, if you ask me after the All-22, my biggest takeaway is I'm so appreciative of a team that came in with a game plan and executed it. Not flawlessly, like you just articulated before, but it didn't matter. They did just enough. I thought Colt McCoy, who we'll talk about here in a little bit, I thought he did just enough. I thought early on, probably their best drive, if you take away the drive where they just punched Seattle in the mouth with a 60-yard run and then two rushes by Alfred Morris led to the touchdown, was the drive where they threw the interception. But they were doing a really good job moving the football, throwing from the near hash inside the numbers with those quick stick routes, kind of taking advantage of what Seattle was presenting them and allowing Colt McCoy not to really do too much, just kind of play within his wheelhouse, which I felt like Colt McCoy did just enough of. And if I had to give Colt McCoy any kind of grade on this game, it's it, it would be a solid. It would be a solid game. He was not a liability in this game. He wasn't asked to do all that much, but he didn't make many mistakes. I think there was one throw that you and I counted that was like, oh, I think if Daniel Jones was there, he would have definitely hit and noticed the leverage of the back on Evan Ingram. And that was the final throw of the game to Sterling Shepard deep, where I think he was trying to throw back shoulder. Wasn't really the best throw there by any stretch of the imagination, but he had Evan Ingram underneath. It probably would have been a first down to seal the game. His ball placement isn't exactly uh, great by any stretch of the imagination, but who would have thought? I didn't think. I mean, not me, as Paul Rudd would say. Look at us. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? Not me. Colt McCoy would take this team to Seattle, and obviously it wasn't because of Colt McCoy necessarily, but he was the quarterback of one of the biggest upsets in recent history for the New York Giants. Yeah, and I don't want to take anything away from McCoy here, Nick, or what he was able to accomplish as this backup quarterback. But it is big blue banter, and it is interesting, I always think, when me and you see it a little differently. I think from watching the All-22, actually, I wasn't that impressed with McCoy at all, to be to be just completely honest. I thought there were—obviously, the play to Ingram really stuck out because it's the end of the game, and I just know Daniel Jones is going to see that play. And if you watch that play on All-22, the final play, the third and five, before they punted it back to Seattle— the corner or, or the D-back, I believe it was actually Adams, matched up against Ingram, had inside leverage, and Ingram breaks right out to the out route. And if he gets that ball right out of his hands on the snap, Ingram may house this ball because Shepard's running the, the go. There's a safety right over the top of Shepard. I really don't understand. If it's back shoulder, that's one thing. It's okay, though the safety could break on that. But regardless here, 
Ingram has the ability on this play dependent. I mean, he may not turn that upfield all the way for a touchdown, but he's shown the ability in previous games to at least have that potential. And at worst, I think he's getting to the sticks there to seal the game. But that wasn't my only concern with McCoy. I felt like he was given just beautiful, beautiful pockets time after time. There was a play second and eight on the Giants' own 24 with 11-10 in the first quarter where McCoy just didn't look comfortable to me in the pocket. His feet were moving. He was very jittery, came back to a read and just threw it low and missed. There were a few plays where I believe his height came into play because, you know, like we said on the reaction podcast, he doesn't really throw a tall ball. He's not a very big quarterback. And on that second and eight play I referenced as we rewatched it, it really could have been and should have been intercepted. There felt like two, maybe three balls that should have been intercepted in this game. And that's not to say Daniel Jones doesn't put that on tape a lot of times. There's been at least a handful, I would say maybe more games this season where Jones has thrown one or two turnover-worthy throws. And they really do tend to come on these stick routes all the time, mostly. Um, but for McCoy, it just felt like he was not as comfortable as he should have been given the pocket, at least in my mind. And like you said, with the limited arm talent, they weren't able to do anything vertically, really. And there were some nice throws, like you said, in between the numbers. I don't want to take that away from him, especially, like you said, on that first drive that led to the interception. And then later in the game, on the second drive to last drive, where they needed to take a few minutes off the clock, and they did. They took like three minutes off the clock. He had a nice ball to Slayton. Slayton had a really good release on that play, on that second, I believe it was second and seven. Slayton had a really good release to get uh, to get open, but at the same time, McCoy zipped it in there. And on that first drive, he zipped a nice one into Golden Tate on that third and 10. So again, he had some good things, but for me, I come away watching this, Nick, like, oh God, I really want Daniel Jones back. I don't oh, want to really see, and I know you're not abs- saying it. Absolutely. I feel like you're painting me into a <laughs> No, no, no. Maybe I'm not I saying you're saying Yeah, Maybe that. I didn't do a good job of saying it before, but no, no, I, I think what the Giants asked him to do, he did at a solid level for a backup quarterback on the road against a team that was 5-0. and And I thought from a mental perspective, especially when you look at Golden Tate, I thought him and Golden Tate were on the same page several times in terms of looking hot. There was a lot of times where Seattle faked like they were going to blitz. Sometimes they did blitz, and you could see Colt McCoy get the snap, quick glance over to see if he's coming. If he's not going, he's going right back to that half-field read to the other side. So I thought within that framework, he did a solid job. And I'm not trying to make this out like Colt McCoy was Daniel Jones here. He threw for just over 100 yards, but he did just enough to not screw this game up, and I think he should be commended for that. Yeah, and I'm not painting you into that corner, yeah. but I just yeah. think at times we're going to disagree, and this is just one of those times where we, we disagree a little bit. I mean, just the way I see it, he he did do just enough, I would say, but at the same time, he did throw an interception that I actually put the blame on him. And yeah, ball missed, placement wasn't, wasn't yeah. right there. And he missed a few plays and then just only really threw for 100. Really, to me, the difference in this game was that Giants offensive line in the second half really stuck it to them, and we're going to get into that. We're going to get a little, into a little into a little bit more of the specifics here. Um, I don't know if you want to start with players or with plays on offense that stuck out to you, but I'll say this. I thought it was very interesting that they used Andrew Thomas, or I'm sorry, Matt Pert and Will Hernandez on the same series. Both Pert and Hernandez got about the same amount of snaps, I believe, one had 16, the other had 14. If I'm, if I'm not, if I stand corrected, or if I'm correct on that one, and I could look that up as we talk. But I thought it was interesting to see them both on the same series. I thought those were some of the Giants' better series. They had one where they opened up with 19 yards rushing on four straight plays with those two in the game. And in general, I'm curious if that's because they see that as a potential future mix for next year. I'm not really sure what their what their plan is for the for now and the future with that left guard and right tackle position. But I'm curious what your take is and if you're if I'm reading maybe too much in this or what do you think about those guys playing on the same series? I think they're just trying to get different combinations out there. 
as yeah. of right now because Cam Fleming actually looked good in this game. Pro Football Focus says that he looked good. I mean, on the tape, I thought he looked solid as well, especially as a run blocker. So there wasn't no liability in terms of that. But you want to get Matt Parrott involved. He's coming off of the COVID-19 reserve list. You want to see what he has. And you want to do the same with Will Hernandez, who was also coming off the COVID-19 reserve list, albeit he played last game. And for whatever reason, the Giants are still rolling with Shane Lemieux. And I, I think you and I will disagree on this a little bit. I do oh. believe Shane Lemieux is is better pulling than Will Hernandez but I don't think Will Hernandez is as bad as some make him out to be I just think Shane is just a little bit quicker out of his stance and he has a better ability to close with and locate than Will Hernandez Will Hernandez is a bit more lumbering in terms of pass protection I don't even think it's really close I don't I think you and I are lockstep with that because there were several reps in this game that Shane Lemieux got beat inside and forced Colt McCoy to either step up or force Nick Gates to really bail him out yeah, I don't think actually we're going to disagree on that first point that you okay. made. So we can get into this now because this is a big one among Giants fans right now, on Giants Twitter, among Giants analysts. There's a lot of talk about, well, Shane Lemieux came into the starting lineup and all of a sudden the Giants offensive line looked good. But if you ask myself or Nick, we vehemently disagree with that take. We think Andrew Thomas's progression had a big to do with it and so did Nick Gates. And I don't think any of that has to do with Shane Lemieux playing next to them. If you watch the tape... I doubt you would too, uh, and I know obviously I've spoken at length with this about uh, at length about this with Bobby Skinner, who also agrees with me. Now he probably is more along the lines, which is probably why you thought I might think this because we've had that conversation. I know we've talked about it off pod about you know how there's not too much of a drop off in the run game. I'm just going to defer to you. I've I saw in this game specifically, Will Hernandez did execute a nice pull, mm-hmm. where he, but at the same time, your breakdown right there of why you feel that Shane Lemieux is a little quicker and a little better was extremely detailed and it's a little bit beyond my scope at this point of my you know studentry of the game whatever you may call it of what makes a good puller on those plays and what makes a good guard and from your standpoint if you're seeing it I'm going to take your word for it because even though I did see uh, Hernandez execute some very similar plays over the last two weeks that people are giving so much praise to um Shane Lemieux for and on one of those plays the one I'm talking about where he kicks out he really does an excellent job he's so powerful once he gets that punch in of just turning the linebacker 56 and totally fooling him out of play now on this play it was a first and 10 at the Giants own 39 uh, with 757 left in the first quarter and it only ends up being a four-yard game because there's an unaccounted for player that has nothing to do with Will Hernandez though Will Hernandez executes his assignment on this play yeah yeah absolutely and he locates well it's just for me it's more of a foot speed thing Mm -hmm. I think that Shane Lemieux is a bit quicker which is ironic because we didn't necessarily think of Shane Lemieux as a more athletic type of guy coming out of Oregon but you're right man there's definitely a chasm between some people on Giants Twitter I don't think it's a huge drop-off, I guess, would be the way I would characterize this. But I do just think Lemieux is a bit quicker on these traps and on these specific pulls out into space. But it doesn't mean Will Hernandez is terrible at it because he's not. Yeah, and there's also obviously the play where Lemieux pulls to the left, like to his left side, and he gets out there really quick and he seals. Now, Hernandez had a very similar play last week. But again, if I'm going to defer to you on this one because you have a better eye for this. But I will say this. Even if we do concede, or even if I guess I do concede, and I will concede, that Shane Lemieux might be a little bit quicker on these plays, on these specific time, types of power plays the Giants have been running now. It's not the only run plays they run. They ran some zone in this game really well, and I'm curious if you think there's a big drop-off or any drop-off there between Hernandez and Lemieux, or if you think Lemieux is actually worse than Hernandez in zone. Actually, I'll ask you that now before I make the next point. 
So when you say zone, we're just talking about inside runs yes. in general because it is very hard to decipher between inside zone it is when you, and yeah. duo. So I think a lot of them are duo. Sometimes I really question it. What about when they all take that step, that first step, that towards, play side, yeah, that play exactly. side step, and they that's create not the zone? double. They, they create the double teams uh-huh. and they climb. That that's both. It's it could be it's inside combo, zone. Yeah. That could be duo. Depending on it depends on how the running back reads the play. On duo, you really trying to get that vertical push or push, create those double teams, and then climb to the second level, similar to what you would do uh, in with inside zone. Gotcha. But it's, you're not necessarily blocking a zone duo a lot of people call it power without the puller but it's just hard to identify on tape and i mess it up as well so does so many people who watch some film obviously people who are incredible experts and who coach these specific things can maybe locate it a little bit better than me but i believe it to be somewhat duo anyways with that said i think shane lemieux does a pretty solid job with that in the transitions and i think will hernandez does too if i had to pick one gun to my head right now i may say shane lemieux but okay. again i don't think it's a huge drop off sure but i do think and i want i want to get your take on this though too dan with those specific plays like do you see a liability with lemieux because i i don't really like the big liability with lemieux is pass protection which is i think evident it's clear it's obvious but at the on those point of attack i'm going to create the double team going to get our eyes on the second level either you or me talking about andrew thomas or Shane Lemieux, if it's an ace or or deuce type of block, one of us are going to climb. And it seems like they're both, Will Hernandez and Shane Lemieux, whichever other lineman they're working with, they're always kind of, at least his last four games, on par with each other. They're always in lockstep with each other. It's not like one person's climbing, leaving that defensive lineman all alone. They're both climbing or something like that. Like, I haven't seen that on film, have you? No, I totally agree with you. I think that there, I, my, my estimation on the in the run blocking game, especially like you said, on whatever it would, would be called, duo or, or inside zone, whatever you want to call it, they are both doing a really good job of it. I actually saw there was one play that stood out to me where Hernandez did a really good job executing his double team and then came off to the linebacker. Now, Lemieux has had plays like that as well. I also think both of them, and this is really a tip of the hat to Shane Lemieux in pass protection, because my next point is going to be, if there is, if, I'm, if I'm conceding that there is a small you know, advantage to having Lemieux as a run uh, in the run game, it all collapses a bit when it comes to playing him double the snaps when you consider the difference in the passing game but I will give Lemieux the credit in the passing game he's done a really good job for a rookie who hasn't had that many snaps next to Andrew Thomas and Nick Gates and who hasn't had that many snaps at the NFL level of communicating well on stunts with Thomas but Hernandez does a good job of that as well and then when you just see the plays and they're so evident and they're a minimum of one per game and they could ultimately end up ruining games. They didn't ruin this one specifically. They haven't, you know, they haven't ruined past ones. But one play can ruin a game if you allow these quick pressures, like Lemieux has at least one per game of, and then it turns to a sack force fumble. And or what if it turns to a sack force fumble reco- recovered, or even worse, a sack force fumble recovered for a touchdown? That could change the whole game. I mean, we saw the Giants lose games last year. The Jets game with that force fumble recovered for a touchdown. This game, you can argue. Uh, this season, you can argue they lost the Cowboys game because of that force fumble recovered for a touchdown. And you see it. If anyone wants to see it, there, there's multiple ones per tape. I have in my notes, and it's so funny because Nick has it right up on the screen as well. And that's the second and nine from the Seattle 34. They're driving down the field, 554 left in the first quarter. And this is an example of the same types of plays that Lemieux has had trouble with all season. He doesn't get he doesn't get out of his stance, it looks like quick enough. And once he does, he's just off balance and a quick inside move gets him again completely off balance. His feet are all, all over the place, and it's just an immediate pressure. And you just don't see that on Hernandez's tape. 
especially since he's come back from COVID. I mean, he hasn't, again, hasn't had played that many reps, I believe, probably less, fewer than 30 combined in the two games. But it's just not there for Hernandez. The feet are too quick with Hernandez, and he's just in that stance really well in pass protection. So for me, if I'm watching this on tape, it's just hard for me to, to reason with the current split. I can understand some kind of split here, even as much as 50-50, because again, right now, at least with Daniel Jones out of the lineup, you are a run first team. This Giants team is going to be running a lot of a lot of football plays are going to be run plays as they should be. Like I said, there were multiple drives where they ran the ball four straight times and had success with it as well. But for me, given that this is so consistent on tape of the Mew, and again, this was an issue that I know people had with him at Oregon as well when I was reading scouting reports of him. So I don't think it's something I don't think it's something that is going to be a lock. I mean, I'll ask you this, Nick. This is something you can learn and improve on, correct? Yeah, it's more of a technique-based thing, and I always say one thing that is kind of a hindrance to him is his short arms on this specific play though it wasn't necessarily that it was his base got a little bit too wide and he goes to punch with that inside arm and 94 i think it's rasheem green just comes in with a really good swipe move and he just swipes that inside arm down and gets really skinny between nick gates and shane lemieux which is kind of bad technique by Lemieux and he's just kind of slow like you said out of his not necessarily just out of his stance but to get into a a stance ready to absorb contact and his aiming points were off and he did not handle the inside counter move something that we've kind of uh, said a little bit too much this season but luckily Andrew Thomas has fixed that this is something that he needs to now fix and obviously it's different coming from a guard than it is a tackle it should be easier from a guard because you have a center right next to you but it's but it also should be easier from yeah. a fourth overall pick than a fifth round pick, I, <laughs> yes. I would say. Yes. And in the same sense, from a 34th overall pick in, in Will Hernandez, though, that's not something Will Hernandez needs to clean up right now. If no. you look at his tape, that's not an issue for him. No, and Will Hernandez, and I've watched a lot of Will Hernandez's tape over the last couple of years, and when he does get beat, the thing that he does well is recover. So I have seen Will Hernandez get beat inside on similar moves like this, but he's very good at flipping his hips and recovering, flushing that guy out of the pocket or yeah. flushing him into the center to kind yeah. of eliminate him from the play and minimize the damage. Lemieux hasn't necessarily done that yet through his limited career. Yeah, I mean, there's this rep, there's been reps where he's gotten beat quick and then just been on the ground and not been able to recover, like you said. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and this was the case with Andrew Thomas as well, when he was starting to make that improvement, Thomas, now obviously he's at a point, and we'll talk about Thomas on this podcast, where he's playing really good football. This was his best game of the season, most likely. I mean, it's hard to say it wasn't, even though the matchup obviously wasn't the toughest, but wasn't the easiest either. And he was at the point, at least when he was making that progress towards the midseason point, like weeks 8, 9, 10, where even when he did get beat, he would at least wash the player, wash the guy down or pu- push him into the guard or at least kind of keep him from totally collapsing the play. It feels like on these reps with Lemieux, the play is just over with and he just gets, it's just a clean pass rush for this interior defensive lineman. So for me, like I said, I mean, the slight upgrade you get in the run game probably isn't enough for me to consider the downgrade you get in the pass game from Lemieux Hernandez and in that sense I mean I can understand some rotation here but not not the way it's it's shaping out right now I I think I'm curious why it's happening like this I I don't really understand it too much because now I mean Hernandez is what two weeks removed from the COVID list though I did read online someone made a point like well you have to understand that guys who are bigger like heavier guys have different kind of recovery periods from COVID, but we haven't read anything from Hernandez or from the beats or from the coaches that saying like Hernandez has been dealing, you know, in one, in some way with the COVID other. I think that's a solid point to consider. It's though. a good point though. Yeah. I yeah. mean, heavier guys definitely deal with COVID worse than 
than the lighter guys. That's a that's a consideration. So I don't know what it is, but that's probably our tip where we're at right now. I mean, do you how how would you ideal world Nick Filato? What would the rotation look like from a percentage of snap standpoint? I think right now, especially if Will Hernandez is adversely affected by COVID, say he's not. Say, say he's, he's not. not. Yeah, just I'm curious. I think just the way this is going, I think you should next game it should be 50 50 and then you incrementally keep raising it if will hernandez continues to show that he's not a liability i'm just really wondering if this is a practice habit type of thing it's something that we will not have the knowledge of because it's something that's happening maybe with it with how each specific player is adapting to what joe judge wants i wonder if it's something to do with that you know, because it's it's just odd to me as well, because I do feel like, yes, Shane Lemieux, I, he might have a slight edge in, in run blocking, and maybe Joe Judge said, hey, we're going to roll with Lemieux more because we're really figuring out our offensive line. We don't want to, you know, mess with the feng shui of the offensive line. Maybe that's somewhat of a reason, but still, man, it's... It, it's glaring when, when Lemieux has these mistakes and you do not see that from Will Hernandez in yeah. pass protection. And when you watch, you don't even have to see the number in pass protection. You can kind of tell which one is which. And Lemieux has reps where he's fine. Like I'm not saying that he's a you know, liability every time, but Will Hernandez is just much smoother mm-hmm. in a phone booth, in pass protection, just kind of gliding his feet and mirroring the defensive lineman, and he handles counters better. Yeah, I think all of that is fair, accurate, and true when it comes to the left guard battle right now. All right, we're going to dive into some more offensive line play, and then we're going to dive a little bit into Jason Garrett, because I may have a, a hot take that people probably aren't expecting there, and I'm curious to hear what Nick thinks about that. And then a little bit more of the offense. But before we do any of that, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time. And there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire, all one word. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire, all one word. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Football is back in full swing, and you might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures all day every day. Head to Bet Online online 
today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, let's talk a little bit more offensive line. So, Andrew Thomas, best game of the season for me. Best game of the season for you, Nick? I'd say so, and it's funny. It's like every week we're saying, oh, it was the best it's game. It's new best Thomas. game of the week every <laughs> yeah. week, and that's what you want to hear. But this is probably the first game where he couldn't at all, I mean, no matter what kind of charting you use, pro football focus, watching the film like we do, there's no pressures that you could atta- that you could put on, on Thomas in this game. He didn't get beat at all in this game. And what he did in the run game to me, was so so was so important and so critical and so awesome in this specific game. I want to talk about the 60-yard Wayne Gallman run and we should be talking about that play anyway and break it down fully, but you saw the same thing I saw in this play. Andrew Thomas's job to execute here is to seal off the linebacker who's going to make the play. He's the key port person to make the play here. Now, Seattle could have stopped this play if 37 played it a little bit better as well, which he didn't. And that's on them. They're a bit of a, a, they play a very aggressive style of defense. But regardless, 54, Bobby Wagner, the middle linebacker, is going to make this play for a seven yard gain instead of a 60. If Andrew Thomas doesn't get all the way out to the edge and seal him off, get just enough of him. So you can break down this play specifically from your standpoint with all the awesome football jargon that people love and do it and, and break it down in depth and kind of explain everything because I know some people who are learning the game who listen to our podcast like it when you do the full breakdowns and you know explain some terms and jargon that maybe they don't know but also tell me if I'm right about this on Thomas and how excited I am to see him really make this 60-yard run happen yeah this is an excellent play by Andrew Thomas and really Caden Smith has an excellent block on this play it's just the blocking in general it's a two tight end side to the field the Giants just run a simple pin pull concept so what that means is there's going to be it's the tight ends and other linemen they're going to pin and they're going to block down on the defensive linemen that are covering the pulling linemen so there is a four technique head up on andrew thomas levine toilolo who is right next to andrew thomas is going to block down on him number 94 which allows andrew thomas to pull and shane lemieux is uncovered there's no lineman over him so he pulls as well and backside guard Kevin Zeitler also pulls because he's uncovered and he's on the backside of the play, so you can pull away from it because it's just a handoff to the outside, just a simple power gap type of system. Dan brought it up before, number 37, Quandre Diggs, made a bad read here, but I also want to applaud Wayne Gallman because that's a huge hole, and he could have cut it upfield and went right into Quandre Diggs for like a six-yard gain, but instead, he followed his blocks, he trusts his blocks, and he maintained the continuity of this play design, and it worked out to perfection because... Caden Smith, who was one of the pinners, did an excellent job sealing the edge on K.J. Wright. So he pins him and allows Shane Lemieux and allows Andrew Thomas to come right around. Sometimes on these plays, when the pinner doesn't do their job, the puller gets affected. If there's any kind of upfield pressure, the puller can't get out in the space, and then it's like a two-yard gain if you're lucky because there's no lead blockers. But Caden Smith holds up K.J. Wright, and everybody is pinned, and then Andrew Thomas is the first into the hole he locates Bobby Wagner. He chips Bobby Wagner. Bobby Wagner can't get to his assignment now. And then on the outside, Austin Mack, wide receiver, is blocking the defensive back, Reed, 
and frontside guard Shane Lemieux comes and assists him there creating this gigantic hole in between the numbers and the sideline Andrew Thomas gets just enough of Bobby Wagner and Wayne Gallman's just off to the races there if Darius Slayton on the backside kind of took the play a little bit more seriously and took out Jamal Adams it would have probably been a touchdown even though Wayne Gallman isn't the fastest type of running back credits Jamal Adams for chasing him down but the Giants end up finishing this drive anyway but it was an excellent pin pull concept by the Giants and the blocking was almost flawless on this play and luckily that Quandre Diggs tried to go through the gigantic hole and didn't kind of read the blocks and scoot outside without a doubt and this play is exciting not only because of how you broke it down and all the key names there that made really big plays Andrew Thomas Caden Smith but it's also exciting because pin-pull concept is something we wanted to see from this Giants team since they drafted Saquon Barkley in 2018. It's something they've tried at times in the past, but have been unsuccessful with it. The continuity wasn't there. The blocking wasn't consistent from the tight ends in the past, and it wasn't consistent from the offensive line. And yet they ran this play, by my count, I think three times in this game. There was actually another one late in the game that could have been another massive gain, but Gallman decided to cut it back upfield. I don't totally blame him for that. The hole looked massive just like it did it looked even more massive than it does on this one and he took a six yard gain if he had gone all the way to the outside and trusted it like he did on this one it might have been another long long gain and I think he'll see that one on tape and probably say okay next time I get this look I'll trust it and I'll go to the outside and I'll follow the pullers yeah I think on that play uh, Andrew Thomas didn't pull if I'm not mistaken because he was yeah he I think there was a three technique so he was a pinner and then it was a G lead so the front side guard pulled which was I think Shane Lemieux on that play so it was a double pull it with Shane Lemieux and maybe an H-back or maybe the backside guard pulled too, Kevin Zeitler, but you can yeah, see how it's different. They can be double pullers, that can be two pullers, but the pullers will change depending on the defensive front that is shown, but it's still a pin-pull concept. Right. And that's the cool. That's the that's the awesome stuff about it. That's why we like this concept so much, and we like that they're mixing it in and using it two, three, four times a game, whatever it might be, because it's a great way to give diversity to your running game and potentially spring a big play. That's the difference. Like you're going to get certain types of gains on those inside zone, those duo plays you're talking about, but these ones have the chance to be really, really big gains if you execute them like they did on this play. And again, like Nick said, I mean, if this is Saquon Barkley running this play, it's a touchdown. It's a it's a straight up 80 yard touchdown. We're not talking about you know, a 60-yard run, and that's fine. Goldman executed it well. He trusted his block. He did a great job with it. But in, in general, with Thomas in this game, when it comes to pass protection and run blocking, you literally couldn't ask for more. I think this was probably his most... Not only was this his best game of the season, this was the first game this season where you could start to look at it like, these guys have owned the entire offensive tackle class has only played, what, now 10 games? Or not 10 games, sorry, 12 games. At this point, you can start to look at it like, with the exception of maybe Worfs, because he's really playing at that next level. Thomas can be, you know, you over time, since these guys are all going to develop and get even better than they are now, Thomas can be looked at with all four of those guys. Maybe not Worfs, and, and who knows with that, but even Worfs. I mean, what Thomas is putting on tape now is really good stuff. There's great stuff in the run game every week, and there's gr- and right now in this, this was a flawless passing pass protection game from Thomas. So I'm extremely excited about what I saw from Thomas. I know a lot of people thought I was very harsh on him earlier this season or too harsh or looking for the negatives. None of that I believe is true. I think that's just how people interpret me criticizing and analyzing someone's bad play. And it was really bad. It was pretty horrendous. It was horrendous. And at the same time it was horrendous. You saw literally all three tackles selected after him playing really well at the beginning of the season. But I think he's caught up with all of those. Again, with the exception of maybe Worf's, 
and I think that's fair to say. He's caught up with the rest of that class, which is super important. And they're also, by the way, still playing really well. So like, if you looked at it as a whole, I'm sure they all still grade out much better than Thomas as a whole, et cetera, et cetera. But if you just throw out those first seven weeks, and I think that'll be something that's fair to do as a Giants analyst and fan and the Giants as a team themselves, if he puts out for the rest of the season what he's put out since week seven. You could just throw it out because it's a different looking player. He's completely adjusted to those inside moves, like you said, which was the biggest flaw for him. Now when he's setting vertically, he's able to recover if somebody does use that inside counter move. And when they don't, he's already in a great stance to kind of, like you said, push them up the arc and protect his quarterback. And when it comes to the run game, I think he's kind of been pretty solid all year. Now, it's looking better now because the Giants are springing all these big run plays, but I don't know. At this point, it's time to seriously praise Andrew Thomas and start to get it's time to get excited about having someone like him on your offensive line for whatever, the next decade, maybe 15 years. Yeah, I mean, he has not been a liability for the last, what has it been, five games, really since that Thursday night game, the first matchup against the Philadelphia Eagles. And what he's showing is just pure progression in every part of his game. And like you kind of just alluded to, he he doesn't wasn't really bad against the run but you could still see him doing a better job framing his blocks and putting himself in position he's always been a dog on those down blocks an absolute maniac on those down blocks but now he's kicking out into space he's locating hall of fame type of players and sealing them off so it's a very encouraging sign because it did not look good early on but i mean you have to applaud this kid's ability to take the coaching to learn from his mistakes and to just make himself a better football player because he's done that yeah, I think all of that is extremely fair to say, and it's really just awesome stuff right now from Andrew Tom- uh, from Andrew Thomas. And let's talk about another offensive lineman who, again, that steady that steady drumbeat continues to build for him because he keeps putting together great film. Every time I watch Nick Gates now, and basically this is since. I mean, for him, it's been even longer than Thomas. His great play started a little bit earlier, but it's kind of coincided with it and gotten even better over these last five weeks. Gates, to me, is just someone who's consistently excellent at doing two things. One, locating at the second level, getting off of his first block, getting to the second level, and sealing that, that defender off to make run plays happen. And then two, in pass protection, he's always looking for work. It's it's fun to watch him in pass pro because he'll, no matter where it is, and there was a play where Lemieux got beat and he had to kind of recover and like fire his butt and just kind of, and he didn't really fully get, it, get the pass rush out of the play, but he recovered. He pushed the guy that beat Lemieux and sort of took him out of the play and, and didn't allow him to get the sack at the very least. And that's just consistent when it comes to Gates. He's consistently helping players in pass protection, consistently smart and heady when it comes to the pass pro. And in the run game, he does an excellent job of getting to the next level. He does an excellent job at that. And he also did a really good job against Puna Ford, somebody that I was really actually worried about because Puna Ford is five foot eleven and he's very stout at the point of attack. And Dan and I talked about this off pod and I think he would agree with me. On the first drive for the Giants, the, the Seattle's defense, I don't want to say they were imposing their will on the Giants because that's not correct, but they seemed like they had a lot more pep in their step. And as the game wore on, they wore down. And there's reps down the stretch of this game where Nick Gates loses the pad level battle terribly, but he still turns the guy. And that shows so yep. much core strength. One in particular is the third quarter, 351, first and 10. So 351 left in the quarter, and he's head up with Puna Ford. Puna Ford gets in, he's lower, his hips are lower, and he attacks the outside shoulder of Nick Gates, and Nick Gates uses his own momentum and turns him away, and that opens up the hole for Wayne Gallman. Wayne Gallman sprung a 23-yard run after that. Like, that play is there because Nick Gates is 
reacting to what Puna Ford is doing. And that's smarts there. That is football intelligence, let alone all the other things that Nick Gates has offered in terms of grit and physical toughness and mental toughness. He's a smart player, man. And he's every week we've been kind of raving about him. Like I said a couple weeks ago, I really do think we found a center of the future here. Yeah, at this point in time, there's no, you know, the Giants have found their center of the future. Not only have they found him, he's getting better and better every week, which is extremely important because we're not talking about a fifth-year player going through some kind of great stretch of his career. We're talking about a player who's learning the position on the fly and getting better and better at it every single week and who is still young and developing as an overall offensive lineman, let alone a center, and someone who the Giants were wise enough to re-sign before the season to a multi-year deal that's going to end up looking like an insano bargain in a year from now. It's going to end up looking like an insano bargain next year, let alone in a year from now or two years from now. And that is that to me, as the, as the analyst that you know, you know, you guys know where my basis is. You guys know all about my thoughts on draft process, why it, it makes zero sense ever to draft a running back at two, all of that stuff, and how I kind of view the overall thirty thousand foot view or 30,000-foot perspective of building a roster. And when you can land a starting center who's playing plus football, plus plus football at this point, for super cheap on a multi-year deal, you're getting a massive edge in your roster building process. So kudos to Gettleman on that. Kudos to the coaching staff for getting him up to speed. And kudos to Nick Gates for learning this new position, picking it up, taking it in stride, and maybe making this the best position he can he can play at the NFL level because we saw some good stuff from him at, at, at tackle last year, some pretty good stuff. At guard, it was whatever. But this is the best stretch of football Nick Gates has played since entering the NFL. I think you would agree with that. Easily. Yeah. Easily. And it's at center, which is a position the Giants needed him most, you know? They didn't need him as much as the reserve guard, especially now with Lemieux in the mix. And as far as tackle goes, like, you know, you would like to see those reps go to Pert if they're not going to go to Fleming. Yeah, and Dan, go back just literally a few short months ago before the season yeah it was a pipe dream that nick gates was going to be the center it was like oh wow they said that he's taking snaps in camp oh yeah cool yeah you're gonna learn the center position uh, right. in the truncated off season and the dude did and now he's playing at a pretty solid level yeah so i, I honestly the way i see like i don't watch 32 centers a week yeah so i really don't know but i would say to me this looks so much better than even solid this this yeah. i think he's one of the best center playing one of the best i shouldn't say that because i don't watch enough of these other centers and I'm obviously not going to judge off whatever. I don't know what pro football focus, where they rank him among centers. I don't personally really care. Again, pro football focus, I don't know how I feel about pro football focus. Again, there's too many times I see grades that are like 42 because he had one random missed tackle. And it's like now his whole run defense grade is destroyed for that week. And then it goes into the whole cumulative for that season because he had a dropped inter- or he makes one interception and now he has a 92. You know, it's just a lot of weird stuff going into their grades. So whatever. But... The way that he locates at the second level in the run game, the way that even in this game, like you said, there were a lot of reps where he had to go right on the, where there was a nose lined up right over him and he handled his own in pass pro. He really did handle his own. A nose so, with a natural leverage. Yes. Yep. Like you said, a five foot 11, you know, tree stump coming at him <laughs> and he's six foot five and he handled it. And he's just so smart too in pass pro. He's communicating well with his linemen and he's always looking to help. That's like the coolest thing to watch. I don't remember seeing that with Pulley. I don't remember seeing that with Halpeo. I don't really remember seeing that since, like, the O'Hara days. I mean, just think about how we used to complain about Jalapeno last year. We thought he was a nice guy and everything, so we kind of felt bad about doing it because you and I, I feel like we're, we're decent individuals ourselves, but we're not saying that about Nick Gates right now. This is a totally different situation than yeah. John Jalapeno. This is, like, nothing I've seen at the center position since a short stretch of Western Richburg 
and that Western Richard stretch was in a very specific system that I didn't think like fully fit his skill set and then he did have a decent stretch once he moved over to Kyle Shanahan's inside zone now he's just been like injured for like I don't know, he's out for the year. I think he, something weird happened to him last year. I feel like he's always injured. He's always he was always yeah. injured during his Giants career as well. But now it's like I don't know what's going on. I think he's done. But besides from you know him for that short stretch, there really hasn't been center play like this for the Giants since Sean O'Hara. And like Sean O'Hara, like Nick Gates, neither were drafted. First of all, neither was imposing from a physical standpoint. But both were heady players playing the position really smart. I'm not going to compare Gates to O'Hara yet. They haven't found their next Sean O'Hara yet, but I start to see signs of it when I see what this kid does when it comes to communication standpoint and when it comes to a mental processing standpoint in pass pro and the lack of breakdowns that you see on that interior offensive line. It really, with the exception of Lemieux getting beat right away, which you're seeing, you know, a few times a game or whatnot. The rest of that interior offensive line, and we're not even going to talk about Zeitler, I'm sure, on this podcast because, again, it's like, because just the fact that we're not talking about Zeidler doesn't mean that we think he's not doing an excellent job. Because week after week, he's doing an unbelievable job. To me, still for my money, he's the best lineman on this line. I would agree. And Nick, there you go. Me and Nick both put the stamp of approval. Kevin Zeitler, best offensive lineman on the line. The team, in my mind at least, would be absolutely stupid to, to save 4 or $5 million on the cap to cut Kevin Zeitler next season. Like, literally stupid. Do you know what 4 or $5 million in the cap means? Literally nothing. You can literally clear that money off by just prorating some of Bradbury's contract or prorating some of, uh, restructuring some of, not prorating, restructuring some of Bradbury's contract or restructuring some of Shepard's contract. How about that? I don't care. Restructure some of Martinez's contract. Doesn't matter. All these guys are going to be here beyond next season. So you can afford to restructure those contracts. You have to play with the cap. You can't look at it. I saw some people today talking like, the Giants have 21 million in cap space, so they can do this and this. No, it's not like that. It's not a hard number. That Is you that have. Twitter's voice? <laughs> yes, that's the voice of that's the Twitter voice right there. It's the that's, voice of public opinion. Yeah, the voice of public opinion. Like, no, there is no such thing as a hard number when it comes to the cap. This is the most fluid thing ever. If you ask Kevin, if you told that line to Kevin Agrams, if you were like, "Hey, I got some analysis for you. Here I am. I'm crunching the numbers using spot tracking over the cap," and those are very reliable sources, but. They would tell you the same thing I'm about to tell you, by the way. And you told Kevin Ambers, look, we have $21 million, so we can do $7 million here, $6 million here, and $4.3 million here. How's that sound to you? He'd laugh in your face because he'd understand that these number is not hard number. You don't just have 21. You can always free up money. How do you think the Giants signed Logan Ryan out of nowhere just for the start of the season when days before it was like the Giants have $3.3 million in cap space and then all of a sudden they signed a player for $7.5 million. How does that make any sense? Well, they restructured some deals and that is a fluid number. They can do it. So again, when it comes to a guy like Zeitler, I have zero interest in cutting him next offseason. Jeez, I hope the Giants retain Logan Ryan, but we'll talk about that yes, on the next on podcast. The so podcast. please definitely download that. There's one play if... Um, I think we're done with the offensive line, right? I think we can turn the page on the offensive line. I want to talk Gallman. So, yeah, where, where are you? Is that where you were going? I was going right Good. to Wayne Gallman, Good. who actually I really want to bring up this one play because I think it's a very underrated play. I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, but for the new listeners, running backs and linebackers sometimes play a game of cat and mouse, and the running back will kind of read the linebacker to see which hole he's going to try to fill when the linebackers are free-flowing and they're not necessarily assigned to a gap. And on this play in the third quarter, second and seven, 429 left, Wayne Gallman gets the best of Hall of Fame, future Hall of Famer, Bobby Wagner here. So what happens, little weak side to the field, just inside run through the B-gap, and Wayne Gallman 
does a stutter step from 22 personnel behind Eli Penny and Nick Gates, and that draws Bobby Wagner inside. Bobby Wagner has no idea where Wayne Gallman is. Wayne Gallman shows so much patience and vision here to let these blocks kind of develop, and then he explodes through the B-gap, which is basically outside because Cam Fleming just blocks his assignment up the field, and Bobby Wagner is nowhere to be found. That is a very smart play, a savvy play, a patient play from Wayne Gallman. Yeah, it's an unbelievable play from from the standpoint of patience, and I have a different kind of trait I want to highlight when it comes to Wayne Gallman, because patience is certainly one of the reasons why he's been so effective as the lead runner for the Giants. And I think at this point, we both agree that no matter what happens when it comes to Devontae Freeman in this IR situation that's going on, there's no role for him really when it comes I mean, not no role. I don't actually wouldn't mind him taking the Alfred Morris role. I know some people would probably not like to hear that. There's a lot of people who are high on Morris. Um, I'm okay on Morris. I think he's been solid, and he's you know okay. He's definitely done a solid job, but I think Freeman can maybe even execute his job a little better. We'll see. I think I would agree with that too. Yeah, I do like the home runs though. Yes, yeah, the I home love, run bat. Oh, oh, dude, I'm big, home, run big home run bat fan. Everybody likes the celebration from Morris. I keep reading about this uh, from a lot of Giants fans on Twitter. Were saying that about the celebration. And again, I was very harsh on Morris, and I apologize since. But he, and he's okay. But. I would still think I would prefer when Freeman does come back for it to be similar to how it is now. Over the, I shouldn't say now. Over the last two games, they've really turned it over to Gallman. That's been a new thing. Before that, it was kind of more of a split, and now Gallman's taken over that lead role. And like you said, patience is one thing. I want to highlight another play that I think it shows off one of Gallman's best traits, and it's his jump cut. Gallman has a really freaking good jump cut. Honestly, his jump cut, like the first time I saw this and thought, oh my God, that's a really good trait, was actually a preseason game against the Lions a couple years back. It might have been last year. I'm not sure when it was. It might have, it was the year, I think it was Barkley's rookie year when he got that hamstring injury early and couldn't play the preseason. And then Gallman came in and he just had a sick jump cut near the goal line, around the goal line, where he was just totally made a linebacker look stupid. And that jump cut, it's it's a different trait. It, not everybody has it. Not everybody in the NFL has it. I don't even know if I see it as much so with Barkley. I'm not saying Barkley doesn't have 17 other traits that are better than Gallman's, but this specific trait to me really showed up on the 23-yard run. First and 10, if you guys want to check it out on Game Pass, it's first and 10 from the Seattle 32 in the third quarter with 3.51 remaining. It's a 23-yard gain. Nick highlighted it earlier for its blocking, but I think not only was the blocking excellent on this, Gallman's jump cut makes this play. He cuts away from Bobby Wagner and completely, and, and he's head up with him in the hole, and he could be dead to rights at this point as Bobby Wagner comes off Zeitler's block, but Gallman's cut, uh, jump cut creates the necessary space for him to then run away from 37, who makes, again, a very odd decision to kind of come down here in the hole. Oh, I don't, again, these safeties for the for the Seahawks had some really, I'll call them interesting plays, decisions in the <laughs> run game. Undisciplined might be another way you can describe them. I don't really know how you would describe these plays, but this is Gallman, man. This is just such a sick jump cut. Yeah, Wayne Gallman on that play flowed with the block so well and like you said he was dead to rights bobby wagner and him were just breathing in each other's face like yeah. if one of them didn't brush their teeth they would have been able to smell it and he jump cuts away from bobby wagner and bobby wagner he's getting a little bit long in the tooth but he's still a top five linebacker in yeah. the league and i know we're kind of like speaking negatively of him because he had a couple plays here where the giants got the best of him but that's more of a testament to the giants and not necessarily a referendum on bobby wagner 100 percent agree with that statement right there that's how good of a game it was from the Giants. They executed their game plan perfectly in the run game. That required all the offensive linemen we've already referenced to play as well as they did. And Wayne Gallman himself specifically, individually, 
independent of his blocking to play as well as he did. And that's, so, and that's why he had 16 carries for 135 yards. Exactly. And then Alfred Morris was the king of vultures. And not only 16 carries for 135 yards, 16 carries for 135 yards in a game where you were literally tipping off that you're going to run the ball. Not only were you tipping it off in the sense that you had Colt McCoy at quarterback, you were using 13 personnel with literally eight guys on the line at times. They had these lines that this was like watching. To some people, if you just threw on the Giants, the tape of the Giants offense in this game, put it in black and white, some people might actually be thinking you were watching 1960s, 1950s football because of the formations the Giants used, and yet that's exactly what they needed to do and what they should have done to have a ch- to give themselves a chance to win this game, and it's so awesome. I want to talk a little bit about the tight ends because then I want to get into Garrett, and that goes kind of, the Garrett stuff flows a little more into what I just said, which is kind of the game plan and kind of the style of football, but we can come back to that. I know there's a lot of good stuff on tape from the tight end, so I want to let you get into that right now. Caden Smith, like we talk a lot about the dual blocking, receiving type of tight ends, and we're speaking highly of the offensive line, rightfully so, but Caden Smith is such an integral part of what this Giants team does from a run blocking standpoint, from a run scheme standpoint. He's so vital and pivotal to what they want to do, and he was incredibly effective in this game. I put together... I guess you could say a montage of a bunch of plays from Caden Smith in terms of run blocking and pass blocking. I think there was nine of them where it was clear cut that he executed his assignment at a high level. And I put it up on Twitter earlier this morning. And I I can't tell you how many times throughout this film where I was just writing KS, Caden Smith, you know, down on my paper because he was sealing, he was pulling and locating, he was winning base blocks, he was doing so many different things to help Wayne Gallman, to help this offense in general, and to minimize the effect of Jamal Adams. Because Jamal Adams, and like you kind of said before, the Seahawks were playing with eight guys in the box. They were really focused on stopping the yeah. run. Jamal Adams would line up right on the box. He would line up in the C-gap, the B-gap, showing blitz. Caden Smith would block down, and there were times where him and Austin Mack, I think on one, blocked down on him and washed Jamal Adams like five yards down the line of scrimmage and onto the ground. It was pretty impressive, and Evan Ingram as well. Evan Ingram is not known for his blocking, but there were a few reps, not as many as last game, where I thought he had his best run blocking game of his career from the tape that I've seen. But in this game, there was a couple reps where he was going up against Jamal Adams, and he was driving Jamal out of the play. And I was like, wow, that's very difficult to do. That is not an easy thing to do. Jamal Adams is—I love watching Jamal Adams play football, full confession. I think he is phenomenal, a phenomenal football player. But in this game, man, the tight ends were able to eliminate him enough. Now, he got the best of the Giants when Deion Lewis missed his block uh, in pass protection, similar to what Saquon Barkley did when Jamal was with the Jets last year. But I came away just incredibly impressed with what the tight ends were able to do. And Levine Toilolo, too. You can throw him in there. He, mm-hmm. he did enough as well. And there was a one play by Caden Smith where he pass blocked and he put his opponent, I don't remember exactly who it was, but he put him on the ground. It was him and Levine Toilolo kind of team it's blocking 98, him. 98, the edge I was literally going to bring yeah. this up next. Uh, this is my see, favorite We're always play. on cue together. And then he leaks out, catches a pass yep. from Colt McCoy, picks up like two or three yards and gets tackled three by yards, Jamal Adams. Yep. And it's just like, Amazing. wow, man. Like, is, for those of you who want to <laughs> see that play, because I was literally coming to that next, because it is my favorite play of the game from Smith. It's first and 10 at the Giants' own 20. 
in the third quarter with 9.47 left. I wrote down this play for that reason because it was just so fun to watch Caden Smith and Toilolo shove 98, the edge rusher, just destroy him to the ground. And then <laughs> Smith gets up from his block, leaks out to the flat, and catches the ball for three yards. What really is funny to me, though, is just how much time Colt McCoy has on this play. There's literally enough time on this play for McCoy to work all the way back to Caden Smith, who has to be his last progression on this play. There's just no way yeah, this could have been anywhere, anything but his final progression, like the desperate move. And yet there's still time for him to come all the way back to Smith and dump the ball off. There were a lot of pockets like this for, pockets for, were incredibly for hot, McCoy. Dude. I mean, if, would you say? They were, the pockets were incredibly hot. They it's were, incredible. They like, were amazing. If Jones has a, like another game, I don't know. They're not going to match up with this, this with the Bengals again, obviously, or the Seahawks until maybe the playoffs. But if the Giants can give Jones these kind of pockets, man, he can make plays. I think for them in the passing game, this offense can get a lot better in the second half, or not the second half, whatever we want to call this, the final four games of the season. Um, final stretch, the witching hour, the as witching Scott hour of the Giants yeah. season. Yeah, where they're really in this dog hunt for the first place in the division with now the re- the Washington Football Team who. Uh, defeated the Steelers and that 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 sucked. I'll be honest with you guys, that freaking sucked to watch. Wasn't I a fan was of it. Not happy about that situation. But again, it just goes to show, man, like how awesome of a job this offensive line did. How often job these tight ends did. Anything else you want to touch on the tight ends before we dive into Garrett? Just go through and watch Caden Smith. Just go to my Twitter and go to his Twitter, yeah, and, and watch Caden Smith absolutely take the souls of some <laughs> of these, even defensive linemen. It wasn't just linebackers and safeties. He did it to Alton Robinson on a play where he just blocked down, and it was just him. And he literally drills this rookie guy who is what. 40 pounds heavier than him to the ground and just it's one of the more like demoralizing plays if you're a defensive player like I just got annihilated by this blocking tight end (laughs) it's it's definitely not a great look but please go and uh go and check that those plays out man because it was it was definitely awesome to see no doubt about it I want to talk a little bit about Jason Garrett here because this to me was my favorite game of the season from Jason Garrett hands down when you consider what, what what he the hand he was dealt, and I make these poker references, I know shout out to uh, Davin Davin on Twitter, Davin Anderson, I believe, who says your poker references are almost as bad, if not worse, than Nick's uh, DeAndre Baker steal the ring joke. Well, Davin, I'm going to challenge you on that because I think my Hold'em references are okay, and I think that when you're dealt, when you have Colt McCoy as your starting quarterback at this stage of his career at 34, and I'll get a little more into McCoy because I have one play that could have been a huge one that I think McCoy was just way too, took way too long to, to notice and, and blew it, but this was also, by the way, a great play call by Garrett, which is why I'll reference it, but I think he was basically dealt 10-9 offsuit from early position. For those of you who know Hold'em, we'll probably get that when you have Colt McCoy and yet he designed a perfect game plan I thought he did an excellent job at times of passing to open up the run first and 10 from the Giants own 25 with 9-11 left in the first quarter he utilizes the pass here for a nine-yard quick hit to Tate that allows him to get into the next play which is a second and one run with Rashad Penny or I'm sorry with Eli Penny for a five-yard gain with Lemieux as the fullback. Why is that important? Well, you're in a game where you need to just move the chains and keep the clock rolling and burn up that play clock and, and you know, milk that clock, control the possession. And I think he did a great job of that. There were times and stretches in this game where they had four straight runs. There was one stretch where they had four straight. Obviously, they had the, the drive where they had three runs for 80 yards in the touchdown. It started with the Gallman 60 and then, or I believe it was 77 yards. And then the two runs right in a row consecutively for the touchdown. But they also had the drive where, again, during these drives, they're chewing up clock. You have to keep that in mind, where they went for 3, 13, 23, and 3 before a play-action touchdown to Alfred Morris. Those four straight runs not only chewed up the clock, 
but they also allowed that Morris play to be wide open for a touchdown there. Again, the two-point conversion. Another play I really like the design by Garrett on here. He gets that play designed so he so he has Shepard open on that corner route, and it's actually very similar to the route we saw. Not the route, but it's sim- somewhat similar to what we saw from the two-point conversion with Jones to Shepard in his first game against Tampa, where he threw that ball towards the corner. And it was a good ball by McCoy. This was probably my favorite ball of the whole game by McCoy, to be completely honest with you. And they got him trapped in man coverage, and they ran yeah. the stack, and it was just kind of one of the easiest plays yes. for McCoy and... But and sometimes the easiest Shepard. plays are the best plays when it comes yeah. to Garrett, when it comes to the play caller. I mean, this is a game where you didn't need to overthink this. There were a lot of times where that was the best decision. And even my favorite play call the whole game by Garrett, and this could have been a massive gain, I think, if Jones was the quarterback and not Colt McCoy. This is kind of one of those examples of where I'm like, eh, I, I don't really like what I saw from McCoy. It was late in the game at a key moment, first and 10 from the Giants' own 25 with 6.09 left in the fourth quarter. Now, at this stage of the game, not only given the formation the Giants are showing, but just based on where this game was at from a score standpoint, from a game script and a game flow standpoint, every single thing is telling you the Giants are going to run the ball on this first and 10 play. But instead, they come out with that same formation they show, not the 13 personnel, but the 12. They're tight. They they motion the receiver in like he's going to block, and they run the play action pass, and Ingram is wide open, but McCoy waits forever to throw this ball, and by the time he finally throws it, the safety comes over and breaks it up, and the ball placement obviously isn't great as well, but mostly the ball just needs to come out of McCoy's hands way quicker because Ingram is wide open it's a perfectly designed play by Garrett he gets what he wants which is Ingram to be wide open if McCoy gets the ball out fast and I think Jones would have and accurately and I think Jones would have done as well this is a 15-yard gain and that really sets the tone for that drive but that's not on Garrett to me that's good stuff by Garrett I think there were multiple times by the way where he you know comes out with great play calls on the third and five from the Giants 44 and quarter in the third quarter with 12:26, the Giants opened the half with four straight run plays for 19 yards this was another time they kind of were able to chew up three minutes of the clock and then you know look how clean the pocket is now this this play I'm referencing which is a good play in my mind by Garrett it's not exactly a great play by McCoy because he almost throws the interception here but just look at how the clean the pocket is on this third and five from the Giants' own 44 in the third quarter with 12.26 remaining. That, to me, shows a great job by the coordinator, in my mind, by getting them into a play where the quarterback has all day to try to find something. I mean, if he gets this ball out a little with a little better ball placement, I think it can be a completion, or if he reads it a little differently. But at the same time, this is just thought there were so many, there were such, so many play, examples of good timing by Garrett as a coordinator and a play caller in this game. The sudden change after the Darnay Holmes interception, Garrett, you would imagine, would just try to rely on the run, but he didn't. He went out and he got aggressive and he threw the football, and you kind of talked about it a little bit just before, about him kind of picking and choosing when he's going to be aggressive and kind of in very obvious run situations throwing the football with Colt McCoy, and I thought that was a really savvy move by Jason Garrett, and then on a lot of those early passing attempts, like I said, you know, throwing from the near hash, inside the numbers, quick, easy concepts, simple reads for Colt McCoy, just read one player, put him in conflict, fire the ball, get it out of your hands, and the Giants just gave him so many pockets, he can go through progressions a little bit later down the stretch of the game, but yes, Jason Garrett, once again, I think continues to impress, and then you got to think about what the Giants were able to do running the football, he did that at a very high level, and you've already kind of talked about it a little bit, everyone thought the Giants were going to run the football. Instead, they hit Alfred Morris in the flat for that touchdown. If you watch Jamal Adams, he's confused on that play. Yep. 
Jamal Adams and Bobby Wagner look at each other after the play, kind of put their hands up like, is that me or is that you? Nobody went out to do that because they were all so focused on the run. Yep. It was really this offense imposing their will and this coaching out, this coach, Jason Garrett, out coaching Ken Norton Jr. Yeah. And again, it wasn't the most perfect game plan ever. Obviously, you know, there's still those dangerous stick routes, third and eight from the Seattle 17 in the first quarter. That's the danger of the stick route right there. Those, the, you know, throwing those routes to the sticks, it leads to the interception. Um, but there were so many examples. And there's also, you know, examples of the opposite. And in my mind, it the opposite of that is when he goes back to, and what I mean by that is he, obviously we see him, he likes to run these stick routes a lot on these third down situations. But what he's been doing a lot of better job of in my mind, Garrett, and it showed in this game as well, is running those multiple those those concepts that are like two verticals to the same side of the field. There's a play I love. It's going to be my favorite play every week I see it. And it's second and six from the Giants' 43-yard line in the first quarter with 7-17. And this is, to me, why just a great example of why using that double-verts concept on the same side of the field is so effective, and it puts the defense in such a spot. We've seen it open up big plays all season long. Recent weeks, we saw the big completion to Austin Mack. And when you go Max Protect here to give McCoy just that perfect clean pocket that he has to step into the pocket, there is not a body in sight when he makes this throw. And when you show so many run looks, it allows for something like this. And you end up getting a situation here where one corner is basically responsible for two verticals here. And the safety's too late to come down. And when the, when the receiver sits on it and changes his verticals to, you know, a comeback or whatever you want to call this, uh, a curl, a deep curl. And boom, McCoy's able to step in that clean pocket and rip it in. This is such a good play call from Garrett here. Yeah, and the pre-snap motion helps sets it up. He pre-snap motion, Sterling Shepard from the far side to the play side, and then he just runs him right into the route. And this is actually a play that teams should use to attack the New York Giants, and you've seen it throughout the Mm. season because it's effective against cover three. You're kind of flooding the the one-third deep part of the field and you're also putting that underneath linebacker that flat defender into conflict because you leak a running back out of the backfield so that's your first read then you have the deep curl from sterling shepherd who's behind him about i would say what is that 15 yards about a 15 yard depth putting that defender in conflict it's away from that single high safety in the middle of the field he can't get down there I shouldn't say single high, but center field safety. He can't get down there. And then you have the outside vertical route holding that cornerback. So that linebacker has to make a decision. He has, he either has to drop to the depth to take away that curl, which he should do, but usually they get enticed by the route that's right in front of them because they think that whatever's behind them is being covered yes. up by that cornerback that's there. And that's just not the case on this specific play. And that defender gets put into conflict and the Giants make them pay again, throwing from the near hash inside the number right at the top of the 40-yard line to Sterling Shepard. And I think that's an excellent play call, excellent play design, and it creates the triangle that we talk about in passing concepts. You guys, for for those of you who don't know, you you try to make, for these half-field reads, basically a triangle to put these defenders in conflict. It's a triangular passing game. And you could really dive into kind of geometry and mathematics and spacing and all that type of stuff, timing. But on this specific play, as I have it freezed on my screen, you could see there's a nice, perfect little triangle there. And Sterling Shepard has about six yards between each defender with one defender reacting in another direction. Yeah, that's a great way to break it down. And again, this is my favorite play from this game, my favorite play call. And it led to what, a 22-yard gain for Sterling Shepard and the Giants offense, one of their biggest gains in the passing game maybe their biggest game in total of the passing game i think it was actually 
um, and just excellent stuff. I want to see them use more of this, and I think they will when Jones comes back into the game. A lot more of these these double vertical flooding the zone, just good stuff there. Um, there's some other plays I thought that were cool. I mean that. I think Evan Ingram had an unbelievable catch in this game on a really poorly thrown ball by. I don't, I'm not trying to just destroy McCoy on this. Podcast, no, no, no. But. I feel you. But, uh, <laughs> I I think it might be this the play that I, I put down as one of the most underrated plays in the game. Yeah. That's third and nine. Oh, I have it. I have it as third and nine, ten twenty eight left in the fourth quarter. Oh, I have a different play we're talking about. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what happens on this play? It, it was empty originally. Colt McCoy motions Dion Lewis back into the backfield. Seattle shows blitz. They bring blitz. Like I talked about a little bit before, McCoy notices the blitz. He throws hot to Evan Ingram, hits him in the hands, and Evan Ingram catches it and falls. And now it's only a nine-yard gain on a – or an eight-yard gain on a third and nine, but that resulted in the 48-yard field goal by Gano. If that's just an incomplete pass, if he holds the ball, if he doesn't notice the blitzers and he gets sacked, you're knocking him out of field goal range, and this game is totally different. So I think that's a low-key, very important play that happened in this game. What's the one that you were talking about? Incredibly unheralded play, and I agree entirely with your analysis. I don't. I just don't think this was ultimately a bad play for McCoy. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, no, this, no, actually. he did an excellent He got it out nice hot play, and yeah. in a good spot. But on one where the placement could have been a lot better, third and six that kept the chains moving thanks to Ingram – from the Giants' own 23 with 10.54 remaining in the second quarter. Ingram just catches this ball at his shoestrings. This is an incredible catch. And again, these little things matter in a game like this to take... This was... The Giants were backed up at their own, what, 11-yard... or No, sorry. They were at their own 12-yard line here. And his ability to make this catch and to keep the chains moving, this is right at his shoestrings. It's not a good throw, but it's an unbelievable catch in my mind from Evan Ingram while getting hit by defender. Allows the Giants to get three more plays on the board. They ultimately punt here, but it allows them to chew up more clock, and every minute mattered in a game like this. It really did. So again, I just love this play by Ingram, a guy who I think has been improving weekly since that bad Eagles game. And this goes back to what I was just talking about too. He throws hot here again. Those linebackers blitz because Ken Norton Jr. wanted to pressure Colt McCoy, and there was a lot of times where he was pressuring and he was throwing hot. He was noticing where the pressure was coming from and getting the ball out. And he does that here because Jamal Adams is off of Evan Ingram by about eight yards right here. And they bring the blitz and all those linebackers come. And there's just a huge void between Jamal Adams and the line of scrimmage. McCoy, again, the placement is bad and he's, but he gets there. And uh, I don't even want to really say it was necessarily late because he kind of catches the ball and just fires it. It's just a little bit low, but that moves the sticks and good job on Evan Ingram who, Again, the interception, it, those types of things happen to Evan Ingram, and it's become an unfortunate trend that Giant fans are being really frustrated by, and I totally get that and understand that the ball placement, though, was a little bit too far inside. If he puts that outside, that's going to be yes. either an incomplete pass or you would hope, unless Evan Ingram tipped that up in the air for the safety. But the ball placement, you could definitely blame Colt McCoy for that as well. But Evan Ingram, he's a frustrating player at times, but he also comes up with some really big plays that really assist the Giants. At the same time, it's like a, with him, I mean, you, you take the good with the bad sometimes. Yeah, but lately I think it has been a little bit more good than bad, so we'll see where yeah. that goes. Anyway, that's it for the All-22 Offensive Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this one, and we have a big one coming next for the defense. We know normally there's actually more to talk about with the offense. This week's a little bit different. There's a lot more fun stuff to talk about on the defense, so stay tuned. Make sure you hit the download button on both of these. That's how we are evaluated ultimately by our big time bosses or whoever they that may be the blue wire folks um so if you want to help us grow the show or if you just want to help contribute to the show we'll ask you one thing we'll ask you one thing always if you've done it already no worries you don't have to do it again 
But if you do want to re-download and resubscribe to all of them, we're not going to tell you not to. But go ahead, head to iTunes and make sure, or wherever you get your podcast, and make sure you download every podcast. Make sure you subscribe to it as well so you can see the new ones as they come in. Also, at the same time, make sure you give us, if you enjoy the show, a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Head over there and write in something there. And if you do, we're going to read it on the podcast. We're getting dangerously close to that 400 mark that I've been dying to get to. Our most recent review comes from B-Man Giants fan. And he says, you do a tremendous job breaking down things and explain the complex intricacies and small details of the game in a way everyone can follow. Keep up the great work. That's from Brett. Thank you, Brett. A couple other awesome reviews lately. Kyle Bandu says, great job. Dan and Nick, I've been a longtime Giants fan. You guys have some of the most uh, some of, I guess you said some of the lost informational and act, but I think it was meant most informational and accurate takes on the players and coaches. I love these podcasts and actually look forward to each week. But I have one question for you guys. Okay. This is why I want to read this one, Nick. Are you guys lifelong actual fans and enjoy doing this, or do you just do this for a job? Either way, you guys do a great job. I gotta tell a quick story, all right, to defend myself. So, <laughs> my father used to take me to the Ledgewood Mall in Ledgewood, New Jersey, Roxbury Township, and there was this place that was. It sold baseball cards. It was a, basically a little sports store, right? So I was there. I was probably like five or six. And my dad made friends with the owner of the store. And the owner of the store one time, just trying to appease me as a little young child, gave me, and I might have told this on the podcast before, I'm not sure, gave me a ball. I'm six years old, mind you. And on the ball was a gigantic Dallas star. I grabbed the ball. <laughs> I looked at it. I looked up at him. And I said, ew, Dallas, and I threw the ball on the ground. (laughs) And the guy just laughed so hard. And he was like, you already have this kid brainwashed. I've been a Giant fan my entire life, my friend Kyle. All right? And I'm sure Dan can tell you a story that would substantiate his fandom as well. Yeah, Kyle, I'm I'm as well a lifelong fan of the New York football Giants. I think this show would have never happened if I wasn't a fan of the team. Um, Obviously, as you know, uh, or you might not know, I, I also work as an editor for CBS Sports, completely unrelated to the Giants um, in that role. And this is a passion for me and a job at the same time, so it's pretty cool. I never thought it would grow to this level. It has grown to, and I think we have even more, uh, even further, we can grow a lot more than we even have already, so that's pretty cool as well. But it comes from the fandom. I've always believed when it comes to this podcast, and this is not a knock on Turchin. I've had this conversation with him before, and you might have been new to this podcast, Kyle, or you might have been somebody who started it with us when Nick Turchin was the co-host with me. That was the first guy I brought on to be co-host. Like Nick Filato, he also has a background in the Scouting Academy and Breaking Down Film, which was a goal of mine when I started this podcast. My goal was to do a different kind of podcast than the ones that I had seen on the Giants. My goal was to have something different, not be the same regurgitating, talk about the news, talk about the BS, blah, 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 the drama. If you, if you notice, we didn't mention the Odell Beckham thing at all on this show because we don't care about that on here. My goal was to be a podcast that combined analytics and my personal evaluation of kind of the overall, like I've talked about, roster building process and philosophy with film with film analysis from the All-22 game tape. Something that I am continuing to learn on, but I needed somebody big. So I brought on Turchin. But like I've told him off the podcast, I do think this podcast has taken to the next level with Filato's edition because Filato is also, like me, a Giants fan. And when you're a Giants fan or you grew up a Giants fan, you have a different kind of passion for covering this team. You have a different kind of passion for breaking down the film. You have a different kind of knowledge, I also think, of this team, their history, 
how it affects their current personnel and decision making. And so I have also been a longtime fan. The first game I ever went to in my life was the Giants playoff game against the Minnesota Vikings in the rain in 97, I believe, or 99 or 97. I can't remember the exact year now. Danny Cannell was the quarterback, and the Giants lost when Chris Callaway fumbled an onside kick. He couldn't recover it. The Vikings recovered, drove all the way down. I believe it was Carter and Moss's rookie season. Moss's rookie season, Carter was there. Touchdown in the back of the end zone. I'll never forget it. First memory, first time I ever cried about anything in my life that was related to sports. And since then, I've been a diehard fan. I will say this, since I started working in this industry, I've become less of a fan of the Giants. I do believe that. And that's fine because I think that's part of the process. But I still, like last week's game, like I said on the reaction show, that brought the fan out in me. That win over Seattle, those type of games, those type of wins, that type of feeling you get. And we'll get to this on the defensive podcast, I think, because the way this defense is playing right now and with the progression we've seen from Jones in the last three weeks and we'll see what happens you start to get the feeling like again I said it's on the reaction show and I know Nick has said this as well with the exception of maybe the Packers I just don't know if there's any team the Giants are definitely going to lose to in the NFC obviously I don't want to see them face the Chiefs <laughs> nobody wants <laughs> nobody wants to see anybody nobody wants to face the Chiefs at any point in their life but when it comes to the NFC with the exception of the Packers since Rodgers is playing so well and that offensive line is playing so well as always for him I don't know, man. You're starting to get the feeling this team could have some special things ahead of them if they can close things out the right way and continue to build on things. But anyway, long way to answer your question, Kyle. Thank you for giving us that five-star rating review. Everyone else, if you want to hear a shout-out on the show, I know it's not worth much, but if it's worth something to you, it's worth something to us. And so then just go over, give us a rating and review, write something in. Otherwise, the other way to help us is just head over to Instagram and follow us at NYBigBlueBanter. That's NY. Big Blue Banter on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. And guys, hey, if you guys want, just ask a question like Kyle did, and maybe we'll answer it. Just leave us that five star, and we'll answer those damn questions. Yes, if you have a question that you didn't get answered in the mailbag, we're going to do a mailbag again soon, don't worry. But if you have a question you get answered in the mailbag, throw it in the review. If you give us a five star rating review and there's a question there, we will most likely read that review. So... And it could be anything. It could be yes. about anything, too. It doesn't have to be football centric. If you want to have a little bit of fun, ask us anything and we'll have some fun together. Completely agree with that statement. All right, we will talk to you soon. Have a great rest of your week and stay tuned for the Defensive All 22 Breakdown.